Okay, good evening. So I know I haven't been giving talks as frequently as before. It's just about the time that I'm spending on finishing finishing up with school so next next month I'll be back more into it but I'll try and give some talks now I was uh, requested to give a talk by one of the meditators so well, I've been meaning to give a talk anyway So tonight I thought I would go over Dhammanupasana. I was asked about this as well by one of the meditators. The practice of Satipatthana, Sati, Sati means to remember, we translate as mindfulness, but it means to remember, to remember the present moment, to remember what's going on in your body, in your mind, in your experience. And so the Buddha talked about four ways that we establish mindfulness or sati. kind of the four bases that we use to cultivate sati, to remember ourselves and to remind ourselves of what's happening here and now. The first one, kaya, is the body. So when we walk, we know the feelings of the movement of the each, feet, each foot. When the stomach rises, we know the feeling of the stomach rising. And we feel hardness, softness, heat and cold and all that. Second one is Vedana. Vedana means feelings, but specifically referring to pleasure, pain, calm. The aspect of experience that is felt, how it feels. Does it feel calming or neutral? Does it feel painful or pleasant? And the third, jitta. Jitta is everything mental besides the feelings. It's Thoughts. It's also emotions. States of mind. What state is the mind in? Is the mind angry or is the mind clinging or is the mind judging or is it neutral? Is it fixed and focused or is it distracted and diffused? And these three make up a pretty good survey of reality. And so when we get to the fourth it's actually a little bit difficult to to explain. The translation that's often given for the fourth one for Dhamma is dumb is a mind object. Dhamma Ramana. And I can't help but say, as I've said before, that this is a very bad translation. So, 
First I want to explain what Dhamma means. Dhamma Ramana, uh, mind objects. Mind objects is a translation that really only applies to things which are the direct object of consciousness. And by direct, I mean something that arises in the mind. An indirect object of consciousness would be uh, something physical, any of the senses like seeing or hearing or smelling. It's indirect because the mind has to perceive them through the body. You can't see without eyes, you can't hear without ears, you can't smell without a nose. You need these physical faculties, but the mind is also able to experience things directly. Thoughts are the most common dhamma-aramana. Aramana just means object. The mind takes objects. Dhamma here means mind object. That's not what is meant by dhamma here. So if you've heard this translation before, I, I feel comfortable in saying, and I might be... I might be wrong, but from the best of my information, it's a it's not the right translation. As Dhamma here is a special category. Some people have suggested we use the translation realities. Dhamma, a, a very important meaning in Buddhism, is anything that exists. A thing, a Dhamma is a thing or a reality something that is real. But if you say that, then the first three are, the first three, body, feelings, mind, these are dhammas. These are all real, and they make up pretty much all of reality. So dhamma here, if you look at it, and we'll look at it tonight, it is referring to things that are real, but it's a specific sequence and there's an agenda behind the dhammas that are described. There are sets of dhamma, first of all. There are several sets involved, but they are also progressive. Uh, to an extent, they relate to uh, the progress, the path taught by the Buddha. So they are specifically related to the Dhamma, the Buddha Dhamma, the teachings of the Buddha. So it's not an easy word to translate it. It seems to mean, here it means something like the realities that relate to or, or act as teachings. It refers to a, uh, a progression, mainly. It's like a an outline. The fourth one is like an outline of the path. As you're mindful of body, feelings, mind, and the dhammas. But as you're mindful of these, you will progress. And you will lead, you will follow this sort of roadmap or will relate to all these sets in terms of going further along the path. So they're an important part of the practice. I don't talk in detail about them in the booklet on how to meditate because they're not really, for the most part, all that useful for beginners when you first start meditating. But as you go through the course, you have to learn about these. They're important. So what are the dhammas? What are the sets of dhamma that the Buddha taught here? The first one is the one that we do teach to beginners. It's the one that's immediately important. And this is called the niwarana, the hindrances. So here immediately we see something that is... Uh, And there's an agenda here. These are 
on the one hand, practically we're supposed to be noting these objectively like everything else, just as we would stepping right, stepping left. When you're angry, you would note to yourself angry, angry, or when you want something, you say wanting, wanting, and it should be objective. You shouldn't be saying to yourself, this is bad, I'm bad because of these things. But here the Buddha calls them hindrances, again reminding us during our practice that there's a there's a progression. We need to be moving away from these things, and it's also a way to gauge progress. Are you moving away from these things, or are you cultivating anger? Are you cultivating desire? Are you cultivating laziness, distraction? These are a good way to fence yourself in and say, oh, well, I'm getting off track this way or this way. And when you get off track, these things will uh, will weaken your practice and will slow you down. They are hindrances. They will hinder your progress. So these ones are familiar to the meditator, but but most important, really, and and important because they're talked about in jitta. In the third one, the mind has all of these in it, but here we see them as a reminder that there are hindrances and we should take them seriously and, and keep track of them it's a good way to troubleshoot your practice when your practice is not going well there's really no other way to see it than you have one of these five hindrances overwhelming you some form of one of these five hindrances is what is keeping your practice from progressing. It's often what um, makes you concerned about your progress as well. Doubt is an important one. And meditators often lose confidence in their practice. Um, so they have doubt about their practice. And if they're the sort of person who is generally inclined to doubt, They'll find it very hard to build confidence even when they experience good results. So good things come, they're quick to forget about them and give give rise to more doubting. Uh, greed is another one. The meditator wants to be enlightened, wants to be someone special perhaps, wants to be free from suffering, wants to feel these good feelings that they hear meditators feel. They want to be happy and have peace and where is it and all I'm experiencing is stress and suffering meditators often are frustrated bored perhaps maybe angry of the, about all the bad stuff they have to experience and so on so the hindrances are very much tied up with our lack of progress even our perceived lack of progress if you feel like you're not progressing quickly enough, you have to pay attention to the desire to progress, because desire, of course, is a hindrance, keeping you from actually progressing. So that's the first set. The second set, um, well, the second and the third set really have to be taken together. The second set is the aggregates and the kanda, what we call the five kanda. And the five aggregates really are, are the four satipatthana. It gets confusing because here we're talking about the same thing we've already talked about. It's basically the same. The five aggregates are form, feeling, memory, thoughts, consciousness. Form is body, feelings is feelings, memories and thoughts or, or judgments or whatever. These are uh, mind and consciousness is mind. These together make up mind. 
and the dhammas because the hindrances are in the fourth one and so on. But it's just the satipatthana under a different name. But they serve a different purpose. The Buddha didn't tell us to practice the five aggregates, right? Satipatthana is practice. The five aggregates here are meant as a theory. And so that we understand that when we're practicing satipatthana, we're dealing with the arising of the five aggregates the arising and the ceasing. So the Buddha said to pay attention and see the arising and the ceasing. As you use mindfulness of the body and so on, you're going to see these five arising. In fact, the five aggregates arise at every moment of experience. Now, practically speaking, we're already dealing with them when we practice mindfulness, when we walk, that's body, it's also form and so on. But the theory is what we come to see from being mindful. As we're mindful, we see the arising and ceasing of the aggregates. And and the the insight that we gain from the practice is this progressive understanding that that's all there is. There's only physical and mental. The five aggregates are impermanent, they're, they're arising and ceasing, they're unsatisfying, they're uncontrollable. Seeing the pain and so on, pleasure arises and ceases. Thoughts and emotions, all of these things arise and cease. It's important because it, it does away with so many of our misunderstandings in regards to self, me and mine, mind, right? I mean, mind doesn't apply to experiences. Mind can only apply to me and mind can only apply to things and concepts. As we practice, we come to see through the, the, the realm of concepts and possessions and so on, seeing things only as they are. The five aggregates arise every moment at the six senses, and this is why they kind of go together. Practically speaking, the six senses are something that we teach. They're another part of Dhammas that we do explicitly teach to meditators on the second or third day. When they see something, they should not seeing, seeing when they hear, they're hearing, smelling, tasting. When they're eating and they taste the food, they should not tasting, tasting. Feeling something on the body, hot or cold, hard, soft, and so on. And of course thinking, when they're thinking, to say to themselves, thinking, thinking. These are the six senses. But from a theory perspective, they, they uh, relate directly to this idea that the aggregates, what we call me, a person, a being, even if we're made up of these five, well, those five are only aspects of the experience. When you see something, there's the five aggregates. When you hear something, there's the five aggregates, the physical, there's the feeling, there's the perception or you know, recognition. You see something and you recognize it, you remember it's like something you saw before. You hear something, hear a sound, that you're able to say, hey, that's a bird or that's a dog. It's because of memory. And then the thoughts, what you think about it or how you judge it, it's good, it's bad, it's me, it's mine. And of course the consciousness, the fact that you're actually aware of, of the experience. These five aspects, they're like ingredients or characteristics of the experience and they come and gone they're only there for the moment of experience and so from a theory perspective this is what you're starting to see through the practice not only are you being mindful of these things but you're starting to see the truth that that's all there is who I am it's just chains and and 
matrices of experience. So this experience is followed by that experience. There's an order to it. We're not just random experience. But we're also not a being or a, a, someone who, who sees and hears. We see that um, on the level of reality there's only experiences and they're momentary. So this all is is dealing with the progress, the day-to-day the, the -day practice that we're undertaking in mindfulness. The next set uh, deals with development. So the, um, sorry, and one more thing about, about the six senses is that the six senses are not only taught uh, in terms of arising and ceasing, but there's also the reminder that the six senses are where defilements arise, or where defilements, by defilements we mean things that cause us suffering, that cause stress, or cause us to hurt others. So any kind of fetter, any kind of uh, attachment, you know, something that you get hung up on, that causes stress and, and suffering. It's going to arise at the eye or the ear or the nose or the tongue or the body or the mind. Um, which means that the means of, of changing is tied up with our ability to, to experience and be mindful of our, of our senses. When you say to yourself, seeing, seeing, it's not just an exercise in awareness, but it's an exercise in investigation, in coming to understand how clinging arises, why it arises, what are the factors that lead to its arising, and how it doesn't arise when your mind is objective. When you see things clearly, there doesn't arise the clinging, the craving, any kind of getting hung up. But the next set, the next set deals with with actual progress. It's called the bojangas, no, the bojangas. Bojanga means bodhi anga. It's uh, two words mashed together. Bodhi means enlightenment. Anga means uh, anga means like a finger, actually. Well, a member. Fingers are called anguli because they're members of the hand. The bojangas are the the members or the factors of enlightenment, we call them. And this one has important teaching purposes. So the, the Bojangas, there are seven of them. But instead of just listing them, I think it's useful to um, try and depict them, help us see them. Like in the middle you have mindfulness and then you have three on either side. Mindfulness is in the middle. It's in the middle because the Buddha said of all of them. He said, Satincha kohang bhikkhuve sabatikang vadami. He explained about the three on either side. And I'll explain them, why they're on either side. But then he said, mindfulness, mindfulness is always useful. The other six, the other six you have to understand how they arise, how they're cultivated, and how their cultivation uh, works together to lead to enlightenment. It's a description of the progress that you the skill that you gain from the practice. 
Because as you practice, you become more skilled at practicing. But but more importantly, you become more skilled at uh, managing your mind, managing your experience. So much of the practice is realizing how poorly we manage our experience, how poorly we relate to it, how we're constantly reacting and and um, engaging with experience in ways that increases our stress and suffering. And as we realize this and, and, and understand it more clearly, we get better. And these six really describe that sort of, well, they describe an aspect of that. Because it's not to say that all six of all seven of these have to be developed all the time. And it's also not to say that you should actually actively try to develop them. But you have to understand again how they arise and how they're cultivated. So the three on this side, on the one side are uh, Dhammavichaya, Viriya and Piti. Dhammavichaya means investigation of the Dhammas. So here Dhammas really does mean realities with maybe a, a specific or a special emphasis on ethical qualities. Kusala Dhamma, Akusala Dhamma. Uh, maybe mind states. So as you're mindful, one important quality that comes about is your uh, your work as an investigator. A kind of like a private eye or a, a detective, that's the word. You come to to be familiar with good and bad states, with all sorts of states, and understanding how they're good for you or how they're bad for you, how they're to your benefit, to your detriment, how they help the mind develop, or how they break it apart, corrupt it. You see how greed, anger and delusion, all the many kinds of greed and desire, all the many kinds of disliking and frustration and anger and so on. All the many kinds of delusion like conceit and arrogance and condescension and uh, ideology, all this. Uh, all these things, are how they're destructive, corruptive, harmful, and they don't benefit you or anybody else. So this investigation takes place as you're mindful. It's a part of the process of developing wisdom. Viriya is the effort involved in this, the, or the energy that comes, the energy that you develop in the practice. And Piti is the uh, the zeal that you gain from the practice. So these two kind of go together. As you practice, you're going to become more energetic. Uh, practice requires energy, so uh, you you train in that as you practice. I and mean, part of the training that we give you is. Uh, to cultivate mental energy, all this, these exercises that we give you, they're developing that. And, and the zeal, zeal is kind of like the, the groove that you get into, because piti refers to any kind of state that 
um, is repetitive and amplified. There are many states that you can get into in the practice that we call rapture, piti, where you're shaking or so on. Uh, they're not a bad thing, those ones, but they're not exactly what is meant here. And they can be distracting and they can even be problematic if you get caught up in them. But no, what is meant here is getting caught up in the practice, getting caught up in being mindful. You know, as you're mindful more and more, you get caught up in it. It becomes kind of uh, effortless as you get in your groove. And that's, I think, what is meant by piti. These three are, you might say, the active qualities. Maybe even the, you call them the positive ones, in the sense of adding something to the mind. Positive, not in a, in a judgmental way, like these are the good ones. No, they're all good. But positive in the sense of a plus, an, an addition. The other three are kind of negative. Negative not in a bad way, but negative in the sense of reducing and taking away. And you see how they have, this is how, why they have to balance. So the other three are basadhi, samadhi, and dupeka. So basadhi is tranquility. quality of the practice, a uh, quality of progress in the practice, is your mind starts to quiet down. Now, it may not seem like that all the time, and certainly in the beginning your mind is more likely yelling at you, what are you doing to me, as you force it through this uh, exercise and this training in objectivity. But as you, as you uh, settle down, when you, once you come to the near the end of the course, you really start to feel the the tranquility. Your mind starts to quiet down as you become more accustomed to objectivity, and and the benefits come uh, as you stop judging everything and reacting to everything. Your mind quiets down as a result. Uh, samadhi comes well very much in line with with tranquility, but samadhi is it's translated often as concentration. But you might say focus is another good one. The mind becomes much more focused, and even when your mind is not tranquil, you start to see how focused it is. How your mind is focused on experiences just as they are. Now you're able to catch things like a camera that's in focus. Now you're able to see things so much more clearly than before. Seeing is seeing, hearing is hearing, smelling is smelling. You catch, you catch the experience and see it as it is. And the third one, upeka, means uh, equanimity, a mind that is not judgmental. Really, the it is in a way the most important one, but it has to relate to the others. So upeka means the removing or reduction, again, of your judgments. Right? These go together. As you focus on things, there's less judgment as you see things more clearly focused on them there's no room for judgment there's no reason for judgment experiences just are what they are and so these three the reductive ones and the others are the additive ones and so at times you can have too much or 
at times uh, at, at various times one side is going to help you more than the other if you're very distracted and very restless the one side isn't going to help you so much And if uh, if you're very tired or or sluggish, this side isn't going to help you very much. But again, it's not about adding these ones when you don't have enough, or or using these ones to take away when you have too much. It's about understanding how they work together. The Buddha in the Satipatthana Sutta he doesn't talk about this balance. This this he talks about elsewhere. So it's important, but it's also important to understand in the context of practice, the one you need is sati. Mindfulness is the one that is going to balance these out. And what's important to understand here is how these work together. Again, I said this already, but I'll say it again. How they work together, how they, uh, how they synthesize. You have to understand this. Not intellectually, but through the practice. It's not the problem. I want, I want to avoid is meditators starting to worry about these and say, "Oh, I haven't been thinking about these. Should I think about these? How much should I think about these?" And that's not the way at all. It's a description of the practice. It's a description of progress. And when you learn about these things, when you know about these things, it allows you to pinpoint problems which again allows for further mindfulness, allows you to be more clearly aware of things. As you can see, ah, I'm sluggish or oh, I'm distracted. And I'm lacking in some of these or in some of these. Allows you to more clearly see the roadmap, right? And more clearly direct yourself and navigate. It informs your mindfulness, or it allows your mindfulness to improve. So these are the seven bodhjangas. Most importantly, we understand that they are what uh, constitutes progress. Without these, you can't become enlightened. And the final set of dhammas that we deal with in the Satipatthana, in the practice of mindfulness, is the Four Noble Truths. No teaching could really be complete without, no Buddhist teaching could really be complete without a description of the Four Noble Truths, so it's fitting that they come at the very end of the sutta. The Four Noble Truths are well, there's a lot that can be said. A whole talk could be given about them. We shouldn't dismiss them as as basic Buddhist practice, but we also shouldn't complicate them over much. From a practical perspective, they we're always practicing the Four Noble Truths as we meditate. the The first one is the one that we practice mostly: is understanding about suffering. So Buddhist practice can be described as confronting and facing the whole cycle of suffering. What causes the suffering, what we do based on the suffering, and the suffering itself. That's really the whole basis of Buddhist practice. And, and a part of the theory is that we're constantly avoiding suffering. We do anything we can to avoid having to deal with our problems including trying to fix them. What does it mean to fix your problems? It means to avoid the problem itself. Oh, no, no, anything, get, get rid of it. The problem is a problem, right? As long as we see problems as problems, we got a problem because we're never going to understand them. We're never going to face them. Buddhism is kind of like playing chicken, you know, that game of chicken where you face them down until they blink having a stare down uh, 
the Buddhist theory is that is is that that's how enlightenment comes about, not from fixing your problems or changing them, but by studying them and learning about them. The idea of fixing things is not a part of it. Part of it is accepting broken, accepting how broken everything is. Maybe not accepting, but 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 understanding. So so from in in our in practice, you you see things, you see how suffering works, and so you let go of those things that are causing you suffering. Now there's so much of our reality that we think is is satisfying us. Yeah, if I do things like this, it's going to satisfy me. Maybe I'm ambitious, that will satisfy. That'll make me happy. Maybe if I get really angry at this person, that'll make me happy. That'll solve things. And so on. We they, These subconscious ideas or habitual ideas that being arrogant or conceited is somehow, you know, if I brag about myself, if all these people know what a great person I am, that'll make me happy, bragging, feeling good about yourself, or maybe even low self-esteem, beating yourself up. Yes, we don't say it like that, but we kind of feel it. If I chastise myself, that's the right thing to do. Even humility, you see some people who are actively humble because they think it makes them look good, <laughs> right? Well, subconsciously anyway, you know. What a good Buddhist I am because I'm so humble. It's a problem. All these things we think are going to bring make us happy. When we're mindful, we see through that. They're not going to make me happy. And so we let go of them. We stop doing that. When we let go, we're free. When we're free, we, we know we're free. Basically, the Four Noble Truths. That's practically speaking. But theory is, there's one other important point, is that as we practice, we come closer to to the pinnacle, which is the real realization of the Four Noble Truths. So that the path to enlightenment is divided into two parts. What we're practicing every day is called Pubanga Magga, the preliminary path. It's not actually the path. Because technically the path is that moment, right? The definition of path is something that leads to something, right? Path, well in this context anyway, a path is not just a path in the forest. But by path here we mean a thing that leads to something. And so technically speaking, there's only one thing that leads to the goal. And it's the moment when all this practice comes together, and all the factors of enlightenment and all your qualities and your faculties of mind, when they all come together in that one moment and you actually see suffering, you actually face reality and say to yourself not really say to yourself but but realize in that instant this is not worth holding on to this is not not happiness not peace this is garbage this is refuse kind of uh Losing, losing your desire and your attachment. So how it comes about is you'll, you're practicing and you're cultivating these awareness, these understandings of things. Oh, this is not satisfying. That is not satisfying. Clinging to this is not good. That is not good. until it all comes together in one moment where it just rushes to the mind and there's an experience that nothing it's not it's not a something you think or it's not a thought it's not a sentence that comes to your mind but it's this visceral feeling nothing is worth clinging to
Literally nothing is worth it. Nothing is good. Nothing is going to make me happy. It just comes from realizing that the whole process of clinging, this whole uh, framework, paradigm, right? The way we interact with things, the way we relate to things. We relate to things. If I do this, if I get this, if I have this, I will be happy. It will lead me to peace, to happiness, to freedom from suffering. Getting something, something. And so we're constantly relating to our experiences in terms of things and things that I can get that will make me happy or free me from suffering. And constantly we're realizing through the practice how wrong that is until finally, again and again and again, and then it comes together and there's this moment where the mind lets go. So it's this, the build-up to that is similar. There's moments of, you know, we're constantly seeing that things are unsatisfying and more and more clearly. But the moment of realization, this perfect clarity comes where the mind lets go. And that's the, so we talk about Nibbana, or if you've heard of Nibbana or Nirvana, that's what that's dealing with. The true cessation of suffering. And so you can see how practically speaking this is. The, the, this group is different. It makes a good topic for a Dhamma talk. Uh, but it's different than the other three. Our base practice should really focus on the other three. Uh, you know, the fourth one has explicitly talks about the hindrances and the senses. So those are very good objects. They're an important part. But the fourth group also has this aspect of leading us onward, and it's important from that perspective as well. So we understand that it deals with. Uh, process and progress and it involves our the qualities that we develop to gain this progress and you can see how it's an important part of the practice of Satipatthana so that's the Dhamma talk for tonight thank you all for listening Hopefully that managed to get on the internet as well. So there's people waiting patiently. Hopefully they actually heard some of that. So I'll try to give, um, maybe I'll take this as a start now that I've got the computer going and try and give talks regularly. We'll see how regularly. I can answer questions, maybe. We have a list of questions. I'll pick questions that are related, that are useful for meditators and try to make them useful for you here practicing. Anyway, that's all for tonight. Uh, maybe come back tomorrow. Maybe there'll be one tomorrow at 9. Maybe not. Have a good night, everyone. <laughs>